The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. The fear and uncertainty that comes during a disease outbreak has been around for centuries and centuries. Well, a new book is delving into the complex history of pandemics and vaccines, as well as all the discrimination and persecution that may arise in such situations. Joining me now is Sir Simon Sharma, historian and author of a new book called Foreign Bodies. Good morning and welcome. Hello. Thank you. Now, uh, we normally live in a kind of a symbiosis with nature, uh, and then that goes out of kilter when a pandemic comes along. Well, it certainly did with COVID anyway. Uh, um, Where I live in the Hudson Valley in America, um, it was quite striking how when we were all locked down, nature advanced fearlessly into our space. I mean, this happened all over the world. And, you know, this was, um, in in a way, it was sort of comforting. But um, it also had its perils and dangers because we know that most of the seriously threatening infectious diseases that have come at us in the last 20, 30 years, um, Ebola, AIDS, SARS-1, MERS, and so on, have all been transmitted by wild animals. So the overlapping space, and this is very likely, I have to say, Pat, as well, um, with the case of COVID-19, there's no evidence really that is persuasive about a lab leak in Wuhan in China. And there's a lot of evidence that keeps piling up that it was um, transmitted in the same sort of way. And and the creature um, that has been implicated in all of this, the pangolin, uh, reading in your book, that right. uh, pangolins are used for all sorts of things. Uh, you know, you have a picture of a leather jacket or a pangolin jacket, rather. Um, uh, also, that, that was made w- for, for, it won't surprise you, for an English king, of course. Actually. Uh, but so. the idea that someone would bring a pangolin to your table and slaughter it in front of you and yeah. sell you the meat for 150 bucks a pound. Right. This is, um, yeah, it, it's not I would what I would call a light supper, really. Um, but the trade in wild, international trade in wild animals has become very dangerous. Um, the, the COVID-19, I think, probably didn't come from pangolins, but other diseases have. It may have come from um, a cute little number called raccoon dogs, or indeed the reservoir of the virus may have been in horseshoe bats. Um, but the, the, the trade in, in wild animal meat is enormous, and also it's equaled by the trade in what you might call kind of fake pharmaceuticals, actually. So mm. um, pangolins are indeed the most, you're right, the most harvested wild animal. And this is really for their scales, really, which um, when crushed are said to, I don't know what you're suffering from currently. Um, mm-hmm. I'm probably suffering, I don't know, quite from writer's book tour, but this is particularly a nice part of it. Um, but um, uh, there are these, particularly in China and East Asia, um, wild animals used for all kinds of things which really don't work and, and th- this this is a real source of um yeah of infection um you write about how um sometimes <laughs> the law of unintended consequences kicks in for example what you call the global hamburger syndrome the demand for beef the intensification of raising cattle because they're in such proximity they have to be dosed right. with antibiotics that leads to disease yeah. resistance so we are plotting our own downfall. Yes, I mean there is there is um, a paradox here. The the more um, globalized we become, actually, the more shortened the distances between um, p- points in time, the easier it is actually for viruses and deadly bacteria to travel. This has been the case since 
the 19th century, for example, um, cholera, and in particular the, the coming again of bubonic plague, travelled on board steamships and railway trains and, <coughs> and even carriages, actually, with um, soiled upholstery, for example. So it's an odd, odd thing about the same time that we're becoming ever more modern, we're becoming ever more vulnerable mm -hmm. to these kinds of pandemics. We're, we're two kinds of people. I mean, really, on the one hand, you know, we're the, we're the modern humanity that manages to deliver vaccines in an extraordinarily brief period of time. On the other hand, we're, we have, we still are a kind of cartload of primitive impulses, uh, suspicion and paranoia and dread and panic. Um, vaccine scepticism, which we have seen um, since the COVID outbreak, um, that's nothing new. No, that has very long history. It goes back to smallpox inoculation in the early 1700s. And if you think about it, we, we assume, you know, most of us have no problem about um, putting something in our arm subcutaneously just under the skin, which is basically made of the matter which would otherwise kill us. We have an act of faith that actually we're going to get a, a tiny, minute, unnoticeable dose of the disease, and that will trigger our immune system. But back in the early 1700s, nobody had any idea either about how germs traveled, or indeed there were germs, um, and certainly no idea that there was such a thing as an immune system. So when the first news came in that people who did actually stick a minute amount of pus under their arms or wherever they were going to be inoculated. It was a kind of ex very counterintuitive. It was an extraordinary act of faith mm. to say, this will save us from otherwise dying of smallpox. Mm. So you can imagine also, um, one should say, that that very early inoculation, which was very successful, was first brought to England and other countries as well, France, um, from Turkey, where it was, had been administered for many, many generations by elderly Greek ladies, apparently. Interestingly, that same kind of inoculation, which on the face of it was so scary, in some parts of Britain also had been a folk practice. We know it had been practiced in South Wales and in, um, and in parts of the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. Whether it's practiced in Ireland too would be very interesting to discover. But when it was, when it was adopted by uh, the likes of the royal family in England or the aristocracy, it ran into a kind of furious resistance of suspicion, especially from the clergy who said, we've no business in interfering with God's judgment. You've probably heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, I, I was introduced to, um, you know, heroes of whom I had never heard uh, in your right. book, the guy called right. uh, Valdemar Hafkin, who That's was, right. um, yeah. you know, he was, I think, Ukrainian by birth. He um, was a Ukrainian Jew, grew up in Odessa. He was the first person to arm the Jewish community against violent assault of the pogrom. So he was, as a university student, uh, among the first generation studying microbiology. He was thrown into prison three times, and he was only liberated from the slammer, and much worse, by his professorial tutor, who was the first person in Manko, Eli Mechnikov, who discovered exactly how the immune system operated. Hafkin went to 
developed the first vaccine against cholera in Paris, but then tried it out with randomized comparative trials, the very first randomized comparative trials there were in India. And um, it was an extraordinary success. And he vaccinated very poor people in the kind of slums of Calcutta and Bombay, traveled thousands of miles. But he met with suspicion and resistance from the official imperial medical establishment who you know, it was rumored he was a Russian spy. He was a, he 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 spoke very good English actually, though he was insecure about it. But he was very much people, you know, in the ranks of the British medical establishment thought he was a very rum character, a kind of queer fish. It didn't help that he played the vi the violin. So he was this outsider. And he was brought down in his career when there was a case of a contaminated batch of um, anti-plague vaccines, which killed 19 people in the Punjab, even though his lab producing these vaccines had had absolutely nothing to do with it. So he was a brilliant, heroic, but very ultimately quite tragic figure, whose name has been completely lost to medical history, really. Um, there is a, a disturbing uh, note in your book about the melting of glaciers on the Tibet uh, Qing Chai oh, right. border, um, where right. viruses have been discovered from 15,000 years ago, when the glaciers right. formed, that are unlike any known to contemporary science. Right. It wouldn't be good to sort of shake hands with these defrosted defrosted skeletons, I think, really. We're just, I mean, there are all sorts of, you know, there are extraordinary numbers of viruses out there. Many of them won't have any effect on us at all, but some might. And the answer to that is actually to support virology, to support the forward study of these viruses and see which can and which don't affect human populations. And not to think, as is the case in America, that virology, because it's involved in the genetic manipulation of these microbes, is itself a kind of dangerous and almost sinister discipline. So this is not a good way around. I mean, the most recent worry, just to um, not, not dismay your early morning listeners, is H5N1, which is um, avian flu, chicken and bird, which is bird flu, which has killed millions upon millions of, but that's why your, the price of your eggs in, in Ireland may have gone up over the last year, rather alarmingly. Well, we know that 38 people, all of them involved in poultry farming, have actually caught avian flu. What they've not done yet is transmit the virus from human to human. But in order to keep a kind of, you know, steely, a very vigilant eye on this kind of thing, we need to give virologists the maximum support we can. We'll leave it there. It's a fascinating book and we could truly talk about uh, your uh, book all day. It's called Foreign Bodies, Pandemics, Vaccines and the Health of Nations is its subtitle and its author, Sir Simon Shamat. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.